This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And so now we are pleased to uh, invite to the podium Dr. Bennett Leventhal, who's Professor of Psychiatry and Training Director in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Deputy Director of the UCSF STAR Program for Autism Spectrum Disorders and Neurodevelopmental Disorders at Langley Porter. He is an active investigator and practicing clinician. His research includes studies of the epidemiology and causes of autism spectrum disorders, as well as other neurodevelopmental disorders. And he's involved with a number of clinical trials to improve outcomes in these conditions. Dr. Leventhal. Hi there. It's Friday afternoon. I'll go fast, okay? Uh, let's see if I can get the slides to go forward. Okay, these are my disclosures. Um, I've done a couple of clinical trials, but none of them are relevant directly to this. Uh... <laughs> okay. So I'm going to talk about autism spectrum disorder, but in many ways there are things about ASD that really reflect broadly into other neurodevelopmental disorders. And I hope by the end you'll understand that many of the treatments are not terribly specific uh, and that this is really a broad group of patients that uh, have a whole variety of uh, overlapping uh, uh, symptoms. So what's a neurodevelopmental disorder? Well, it's something that's usually syndromal. Now, it's syndromal slightly different than from what uh, Dr. Scher talking about. Uh, it, it means that it's a, I'll explain in a minute, but it's a group of symptoms that I'll talk about. Almost all these disorders begin in childhood, and usually early childhood, if not in utero. They all affect brain functioning in some way or another, and they have clinical effects on emotions, cognitions, and behavior. Um, by DSM-5, this is the list of neurodevelopmental disorders, um, and it's a long list. Uh, the ones we're going to primarily talk about now are uh, autism spectrum disorder and a related condition called social communication disorder. That is, it's basically ASD, but without the restricted repetitive and stereotype behaviors. But in some sense, many of these conditions can have some of the symptoms that we're uh, uh, interested in. And by the way, even though DSM reflects that um, as the list of uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, I would advise you to be, think broadly because I think there are many other conditions that have early onset that, that follow a, a disrupt development and actually have symptoms that also overlap. And uh, some of you might be surprised to see Alzheimer's on that list, but in fact there's going to be, I think, growing evidence that you'll be able to detect some of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease in genetically vulnerable individuals very early in life. Um, so what is autism? It's a syndrome. A syndrome is a group of symptoms that tend to cluster together. It doesn't say that everybody has all of them. And they tend to cluster together and share a common natural history. That is, they get better or worse over time. A disease is a syndrome for which there's a known cause or for which there's a known pathophysiologic process or both. Most of the things that we talk about 
even if we know the gene, we don't actually often know the pathophysiology. That is actually what's happened, what's disrupted in the brain to cause the kind of symptoms we have. So most of the things we talk about in neurodevelopmental terms of developmental disabilities are syndromes, and we don't really know the cause. That doesn't mean we can't do anything. And by the way, most medical conditions are syndromes, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, asthma. We can go down the list. Uh, most of them are syndromes. And we don't really know what the causes are, but we actually have treatments. Now, most people, when they think about autism spectrum disorder, they think about what's in the lay media or in, the, uh, in movies. And in some cases, they're quite good depictions. In some cases, they aren't. they aren't. But what's good to remember is how diverse these people are, that they're very different characterizations of the same syndrome, however artistically they might be uh, portrayed. And of course, the, I think one of the best depictions is of a high-functioning individual is Temple Grandin with Claire Danes. Um, even Temple Grandin thought it was pretty good. Uh, so the term autism came from a man by the name of Leo Connor, who in 1943 wrote a paper called Autistic Disturbances of Affective Contact in a, in a journal called The Nervous Child. We no longer have the journal, but we still have nervous children and parents. Um, and they're concerned about these kids. But in fact, autism didn't begin in 1943. It's been around for as long as there have been human beings. A very famous case is the wild boy of Aveyron, a boy who was found wandering around in the town of Aveyron in early, late, eight, late 1700s and was picked up by Etard. Uh, Etard is on the left and Victor's on the right. And, and Etard took Victor to Paris and tried to train him. And Victor learned many things, how to sit at a dinner table, how to dress, but he never learned to speak and, he, and all of his social skills were quite rote. And but there are many other case reports like this. Now, it also reflects in some sense the kind of concerns people had about causes. They thought Victor was raised by wolves in the uh, forest, and that's why he wasn't a properly, a properly civilized. In point of fact, Victor was probably developmentally disabled. In those days, uh, you could kill your children. It was, it was perfectly permissible. It wasn't illegal because children were thought of as property. Um, and this was a very kind family. Instead of killing their child, they just turned him loose in the forest, and he came out the other side and got found by uh, Itard and moved to Paris and lived a better life than his parents probably did. Uh, just goes to show there is some justice. Uh, lucky he wasn't an immigrant. Um, <laughs> Uh, so these are DSM-5 criteria for ASD. You'll see that there are two main criteria, deficits in social communication and social interaction, and B, the restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities. Um, and these are the, the basic diagnostic tools that we use, but as you can see, there are a large group of symptoms, and how one aggregates them and to the extent to which they impair somebody is highly variable. Um, by the way, this is social communication disorder, and you can see it's very similar, but it says that the social communication abilities are disrupted because of language function, and it doesn't have the, um, ha doesn't have the uh, restricted repetitive behaviors. Um, I think the story about this remains to be told. I I'm not sure that we really know how different it is, and it may be a distinction without a difference in the long term, but we'll find out. 
Now, when it comes to thinking about autism spectrum disorders, I actually just include a social communication disorder when we think about it as treatment. So it's a syndrome. It's characterized by developmental delays and developmental deviations. That is, things occur that don't occur in typical development. The domains of impairment are largely in the areas of social development, as we've discussed, with disruptions in joint attention, theory of mind, and difficulties with reciprocity. Joint attention is the ability to join other people in what they're paying attention to, and theory of mind is to have a notion that someone else has thoughts uh, just like you do and that, that you have to be able to respond to those. Their communication problems has been mentioned and then this set of unusual behaviors. Uh, the course is consistent over time. That is, most people with ASD get better over time with a few exceptions, Rett syndrome being one of them and some of the other uh, syndromes that Dr. Scher talked about where there's continuing damage to the brain. But most of the people we know get better over time. Some of the symptoms seem to diminish over time, particularly the repetitive behaviors and the problems with looking people, uh, having visual regard. Other symptoms persist and don't seem to go away. Uh, problems with social reciprocity, language, and the restricted uh, and repetitive behaviors of certain types that a persistent interest in things or difficulty making changes, insistence on sameness. By the way, if we know some of them change over time, it's going to actually have an implication for a treatment, and we'll get to that in a minute. So what are the, if it's a spectrum, autism spectrum disorder, what constitutes a spectrum? Well, the, the symptoms themselves, these little unusual autism behaviors, insistent sameness, rocking, things of that sort, and then, uh, but also language skills, the ability to communicate, language being broadly, not just speech, but the full spectrum of communicative behaviors, uh, the, the in severity of social skills, and then intellectual ability. So in a sense, if you're on the far left-hand, let's see, left-hand side of this picture, uh, and you have mild in all those areas, you're going to appear to be higher functioning, so-called. And if you have more severe impairment, you're going to end up in, in the, on the other side of the spectrum. And, and it'll vary because the symptom picture varies. Remember, it's a syndrome. So not everybody has all the same syndrome, symptoms or symptoms of the same severity. So what causes it? Well, you've heard about uh, Dr. Scher talk about uh, genes or chromosomal syndromes and other kinds of genetics that suggest that there's an increased risk if you have a sibling or a family member with ASD. But there are other things that can cause ASD as well, as Dr. Scher has, has shown you. I think one of the critical things that we need to remember is that there probably isn't a single cause. There are probably many, and they're not a single genetic cause. And genes interact with the environment. And so to say, is it environmental or, or is it biological? The answer is yes. And thinking about it dichotomously is not really helpful. Now, that's not to say that bad mothers, as an environmental factor, cause autism. They do not. They cannot. As powerful as mothers are, they can't cause autism. Uh, they can cause lots of other aggravation, but not. Um, uh, but I would point out dads can too, and aunts and uncles and grandmas and everybody. We can all impact children. But what is important to remember is even if it's a basic biological disorder, which I think most of us believe, experience in life and around you as you develop in the quality of education, the quality of services, the quality of parenting, quality of nutrition, quality of health care, all those things impact all of our development, including children with autism. They're not immune, and they may be even more vulnerable to some of those environmental factors. So, 
Um, what about treatment, which is what I'm really supposed to be talking about? Well, treatment begins with, first of all, understanding that we're dealing with a group of symptoms, not necessarily a specific disease for which we know a cause. We're not treating a cause. And you have to start by carefully assessing the patients. It's what Dr. Scher talked about earlier, and we're going to re reiterate. You really have to do a careful assessment. And what constitutes this careful assessment? You have to screen for a broad variety of potential causes or problems, ranging from genetic to environmental factors. You have to take it, you have to interview the patient, you have to talk to them. I know you say, well, kids with autism don't always talk. First of all, the vast majority of them talk. They may not talk in ways that's the easiest to understand, but they can communicate, and spending time with them is important. Of course, taking histories from family members, and you actually have to see the kid and see them interact in the environment around them. There are a whole variety of standard diagnostic instruments which have been well established or empirically valid and which should always be used. But just because you can get an ADI, Autism Diagnostic Interview, or ADOS, Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, be positive, it still is a clinical diagnosis. So just because you get a test score that's positive doesn't mean you, that they have, or if it's negative, that they don't have the disorder. It's information that helps you. And then you have to look at adaptive functioning. So it's not just that you have a disorder, but how it impairs your life and how it impairs your living, because in fact, the kind of treatments we do are designed to improve the quality of life and the skills of the individual, not just take away uh, the symptoms that make a diagnosis. And Dr. Scher made a cogent point about doing a careful examination. These kids are not always easy to do physical examinations on, and as a result, many physicians, pediatricians uh, in particular, will just brush through the exam. And these kids, more than anybody else, deserve a thorough exam. I can't tell you, and I'm guessing that Elliot will do the same thing, and tell you how many kids, young kids I've seen who had sensory impairment who looked like they had autism. They couldn't hear or they couldn't see. And, and when you carefully examine them, you find out that they, they can't, and you help them see and you help them hear, they do a lot better socially. Um, uh, although sometimes if I don't hear, I do better socially too, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> and then, of course, there are laboratory tests that, that Dr. Scher has talked about. Now, what are the factors that predict um, outcomes for kids with people with autism? It, why do I want to know this? Because if I can change them, then it'll improve their outcomes. So expressive language by having communicative speech by the age of five and understanding spoken language by the age of five seems to have pretty good prognostic features. That would make you think right away speech and language services would be really important, right? Intellectual capacity. Not a lot we can do to change intellectual capacity. Adaptive function, teaching kids skills. And then the severity of autism symptoms, like social deficits, restricted repetitive behaviors, and aggression. Notice they're way down at the bottom there. Sadly, those are the ones, when we, I'm going to talk about medications, are the ones we can deal with most. And what I'm telling you is that the most important interventions really are not things that we use medications for. Um, so these are the kind of interventions that you should be using and pharmacotherapy is just one and at the bottom of the list. Okay, so which behaviors can we deal with? We have to take the symptoms out of the syndrome and say which of the symptoms from the syndrome can we address? 
So let's, the first one that seems to be very disruptive and interferes with children's lives are the restricted and repetitive behaviors. Now let me just talk about those for a moment. You know them very well, but it includes getting fixated on a particular object or watching Finding Nemo over and over and over again, or worse than that, a two-minute interval of Finding Nemo over and over and over again. And when you make the child stop doing that, they get really upset uh, and can and tantrum. Now, there are a number of problems with that particular kind of behavior. There's nothing wrong with Nemo. I mean, Nemo's an okay guy. But the problem is if you're, that's all you do, then you can't learn other stuff, and you can't engage socially in the rest of the world around you. And if anybody tries to change it, then you get all bent out of shape. That makes it difficult for people to then move you on to other things. This whole principle of insistence on sameness, the difficulty in making changes, changing the environment, if you move a piece of furniture or something in the house and the, and the child gets upset, or if they have to change from reading class to mathematics class and they fall apart, it makes it very difficult to provide education for them. And the world in which we live isn't fixed and stable. So learning how to participate in the broader world around you so that you can go to school and go to church or, or go to Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or do the play sports. In order to do those things, you have to have some flexibility. So this is one of the behaviors that we think we can make some uh, headway with by using medications. I'm, I'm going to, at the end, caution you about all this, but, but in the beginning we'll talk about. So the, the medications that seem to be the most effective in doing this at the moment are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and this is a list of all of them. Prozac and Zoloft are probably the best known. Uh, but um, the, and how did we figure out to do this? Well, we actually didn't figure it out in autism. As it turned out, there were a bunch of pe- uh, dogs that had repetitive behaviors, uh, something called acrolic syndrome, where they licked the perianal glands. And they would do it so badly that they would get themselves infected and actually could die. And someone figured out that if you gave them a drug called anaphronil or clomipramine, the one on the bottom, they would stop doing this repetitive behavior. So then people tried to use it in in humans who had compulsive disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and it worked to a moderate degree. And then finally it got used in autism. Um, and But for, and for other kids, including children with intellectual disability who have these kind of behaviors. And it had a moderate amount of success. This is one of the earlier papers looking at, um, this is children with autism, um, using a measure of obsessive compulsive behaviors. And you can see that the kids with, um, with um, uh, the placebos on the top and with uh, ASD got substantially better in a relatively short period of time. Um, and when you looked at, at their overall outcome, just their global improvement in uh, taking every aspect of their behavior, there was a really statistically significant difference between um, the kids who were on placebo and pl- kids who were on, in this case, fluoxetine or, or Prozac. So it looks like this makes a difference. doesn't work for everybody, and in some cases it may make them worse for a variety of reasons, but it looks like it has a powerful effect. And when you look at side effects, which I think we always have to do, and I love this table because this is a table where almost every one of the side effects is worse on the placebo. Uh, Well, that's an important thing to remember, that sometimes people perceive things that may not necessarily 
That was a good idea. Um, uh, so it, sometimes people perceive things that may not actually be uh, relevant to the, or causal by the medication. So it's really important when we work with our patients to help them understand what the side effects can be, but also monitor them. Um, next group of symptoms that are really problematic with children with ASD is aggression and irritability. So in the past, going back 50 years, 50 years now, the use of a, a, a the drugs called uh, neuroleptics, Thorazine uh, was one of them, or Haldol, uh, have been shown repeatedly in a variety of settings, irrespective of the diagnosis, that you can reduce aggression in individuals and irritability in individuals by giving them these drugs. These drugs have many awful side effects, and patients won't take them. And so there's now a new group of drugs called atypical neuroleptics or second-generation neuroleptics, and two of these drugs, Risperidone or Risperdal, and Aripiprazole or Abilify, have been approved by the FDA on the basis of clinical trials to treat the irritability associated with autism. Now, I want to be clear, it's not to treat autism, it's to treat irritability associated with autism, the kind of irritability we talked about in response to the stereotype behaviors. And this is a study that was done by an NIH-sponsored, in an NIH-sponsored grant, and you can see that um, the kids, the green line of the kids on Risperidone and the kids on uh, on placebo or on the, the gray line. And in as quickly as two weeks, there was significant separation between the kids who were being treated and the kids who were not. And this treatment and the, the effect persisted and continued to get better over uh, an eight-week period. And it looks like it's say, sustained in longer studies after that. About 75% of the kids on Risperidone got much improved or very much improved, whereas only 11% of the kids on placebo. So it's about, I mean, it makes a really big difference in these kids. But not every behavior gets better, and this is important. So hyperactivity got better. Restricted and repetitive behaviors got better. Aggression got better. But the social functioning didn't change. And an inappropriate speech didn't change. It was not statistically different. So it doesn't treat the whole syndrome. And even by treating part of the syndrome doesn't mean that everything else will get better. However, if a child's less irritable and less aggressive, they're probably more amenable to engage in speech and language therapy, behavior therapy, etc. And so using this to supplement those or to augment them is really the way to think about it, not how to cure the disorder or make all the symptoms of the syndrome go away. This is a slightly different view of side effects, just again to give you a perspective, and the side effect that you really want to pay most attention to, on almost all the side effects here are higher on, on Risperidone, and the one that I think you need to pay most attention to is the one at the very bottom. In an eight-week trial, the average of 49 kids, uh, the average child gained 2.7 kilos, which is about six pounds, uh, versus 0.8 kilos in the control group. And so you really have to watch this and manage it because weight gain is a serious problem. Uh, and, but there are other s symptoms as well. Okay. 
Now, there are a number of other drugs that have been around for a very long time that have been shown to decrease aggressive behavior, again, irrespective of diagnosis. One is lithium carbonate, and uh, it's a drug we use for bipolar disorder, but it's extremely effective, actually, across the board. So when we have kids that don't respond to the neuroleptics, it's harder to manage this drug because you have to use blood levels and you have to be careful to keep the kids well hydrated. But in general, it's extremely effective um, and has relatively fewer side effects because it's only the lithium, it doesn't metabolize into anything else. And then there's a drug called propranolol, which has been shown to decrease aggressive behavior in a whole variety of individuals, including those with neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, it's the drug Indorol. It's an antihypertensive. But unfortunately, you have to give it in very large doses, something around four to 800 milligrams a day, which um, you, it may, may make some people, um, their blood pressure drop, although I've had kids on 800 milligrams a day and they don't have any blood pressure changes at all. So I don't, you know, go figure that out. Um, but again, it's another option for us. And aggression is the biggest problem when we have presenting patients. And so trying to find a solution is important. What about attention deficit disorder? First of all, it used to be said that you couldn't have ADHD and ASD. Now you can. Uh, someone voted and said it's true, but those of us who are some of those, but those of us who are clinicians have known it all along, and uh, so we many kids with uh, ASD have ADHD, and so we treat with the st standard stimulants that you're familiar with. There are dozens of them now. Um, and, uh, and there are now studies in children with ASD who are treating their ADHD symptoms. And this is a crossover trial, and it just shows that, that whether you got it, that parent teachers both see the kids get better and, uh, and significantly better uh, in terms of paying attention. So this, it used to be said stimulants didn't work with kids with ADHD, with ASD. That's completely not true. It doesn't work for everybody, but it doesn't work for every kid with ADHD either. So uh, using stimulants for kids who have attentional problems is quite effective. For those kids who can't tolerate stimulants, there are some other non-stimulant medications, and in particular, um, Stratera or Adamoxetine, and then the alpha-adrenergic agonists, clonidine and guanfacine. Um, there are some recent studies that show that they're moderately effective. I don't think they're nearly as effective as the stimulants, and uh, I would only use them either as an augmentation or as a, uh, uh, we'll do questions at the end, okay, uh, as a supplement, not as a primary treatment. Somebody disagree with me. Then mood disturbance. Children, mood disturbance, children get, with ASD, get depressed. Hey, what's the surprise about that? Autism doesn't, doesn't protect you from depression. And, um, and in fact, it may make you more vulnerable. And if you're higher functioning, it may be a real struggle for you. And so there's no reason to think that treating kids with mood disorders with ASD, with the usual suspects of uh, the the serotonin reuptake inhibitors is the best uh, option for these kids. And then finally, uh, oh, and, and then and in some cases people use mood, dis mood stabilizers like the anticonvulsants. This is actually quite convenient, particularly for those kids who have uh, seizure disorders. You can get double dipping uh, with uh, both of these agents. Again, I want to be clear, there are not m studies that show that these drugs specifically work in ASD, but we have no reason to believe that they don't. Um, what about anxiety disorders? Kids with ASD also get anxious. Um, I think there's pretty good evidence to suggest that using benzodiazepines and related drugs for anything more than a few doses is probably not a good idea in these 
for these kids. Probably not a good idea for anybody, but that's another story. Uh, a significant number of individuals who get benzodiazepines have uh, discontrol syndromes. It's sort of like alcohol. Uh, and so we have a tendency for those kids who are quite anxious to use, the, again, the SSRIs. But because they work in treating anxiety disorders in other children and other people with anxiety, not because it's unique to uh, ASD. Now, there are a bunch of new medications around, and Dr. Scher referred to them, um, and, um, and they've seen varying degrees of success. Most of the trials are quite small. There's a large trial now going on with vasopressin 1A agonist. It's a Roche-funded study, it's a, and there are a number of other companies getting ready to come out. And the basic idea is these drugs improve social responsiveness. It, they do in rodents. It's not quite clear that they do in human beings, and the preliminary data has been quite uneven. Now, it's partly due to very small sample sizes and not very well done studies, but this is something to be watching. And I think that there are lots of new drugs coming out that are targeting uh, the evolving biology of the, drug, of the disorder, and I, I think you're going to start seeing people trying things. I would just urge you to be cautious that because... Uh, Wait until the trials are done, because these kids have enough trouble. If we give them a drug that turns out to be a bad idea and, uh, and then it causes damage, it's the least thing we need to do. Uh, there's an evolving interest in cognitive enhancers, the drugs that, that we use to treat uh, dementias, Alzheimer's disease, and these look like they uh, may have some positive effects, particularly for individuals with intellectual disability, but I think the effect sizes are very small, the side effects are large, and so it's a, really a careful clinical decision that has to be made. But I'd watch this literature because I think it's going to evolve over the next several years. And then there are a whole variety of other complementary and alternative treatments. And I'm not going to go through these now because you're going to get one of the world's experts to talk about that in Bob Hendren in a, in a little bit. Bob knows more about this than anybody I know. And, uh, and I think there's some evidence that, uh, that there's some real potential for helping people with ASD, but the sample sizes are small, and so it's hard to know for sure what's really working. And then there are gazillions of other treatments that people proposed. And I think our population, we need to be very cautious about using these treatments until they're well established. I'm going to give you an example. This is a drug called secretin. It is a drug that, um, it's a, a GI hormone that was touted as a cure for autism. And uh, as it turns out, when you do a proper trial, the difference between placebo and the active drug was indistinguishable. In fact, a placebo may have been a little bit better. Uh, but more importantly, it had potential for causing really serious adverse events. People could get, develop a, um, a, a tolerance to this or an immunologic reaction to, to it because it came from pigs and it wasn't exactly the same as human. And then it would disrupt their ability to digest. So we have to be careful um, by the way, this is a drug that cost $75 a vial to buy, but people bought it up and were selling it for $3,000 a vial, and people were mortgaging their homes and putting kids on this, and it was just an awful thing. Wait for the trials to be done, because they're, they're really, it, one has to be careful about this. You know, another popular treatment is chelation, where we need to get all the heavy metals out of the body. We don't, because you need the heavy metals. If you don't have them, you die. Um, and in fact, some of the chelation kids who have been chelated have died. So there are lots of proposed treatments and that you can give that may seem to make sense, but until you see a trial, you don't really want to do it. So there are three caveats I want to give to you as I close. Number one, these are individual patients in a study. 
And you can see some people get better, some people get worse, and some people say the same. So when we tell you that a study shows something, we, you need to remember that not everybody in that study got better. So because we, we tell you that SSRIs may work for stereotypies, when you go to give it to a patient, some of your patients won't get better. It's not because the study was bad or there's something wrong with your patient. It's just not everybody gets better. Secondly, all medications have side effects. And this is particularly problematic in ASD because our patients often have difficulty telling us about their side effects. So we have to make sure we query them. We need to make sure their caregivers understand them. And we need to make, be very careful that they're not be made uncomfortable by the medications that we're giving them. And finally, just because a small amount of medication works well doesn't mean a lot will work better. In fact, in most cases, reducing the dose will probably lead to a better outcome than other things as well. So be cautious. And the bottom line is that we want to use treatments that work. And some of the treatments that work are really environmental treatments, and we need to help the, the speech and language pathologist and the behavior therapist do a better job by supplementing those uh, management of those behaviors with the medications. At the end of the day, we want the kids to get better, and we should do everything we can, bring all the tools together to get them better. And at that point, I'll stop. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.